Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Hope and Heart Pills podcast, the show where we share practical solutions to racial justice and social change. I'm Nandi K. And I'm Alicia. Hey, y'all. We are, you, y'all know me. Y'all know I'm always excited to talk <laughs> to you. But very, very much so this week because we get to speak to the incredible, brilliant Tori Glass. Yes. Tori is an anti-racist educator, writer, content creator, and in her own words, a prolific tweeter. Which is true because I know Tori because of Twitter. I mean, she's hilarious. But like when I tell y'all she's brilliant, I mean, her social commentary is like spot on. And she's also the creator of something called White Homework, um, which you'll hear a little bit more about in our interview with her today. Yeah, I really like Tori. I like how uh, I follow her on Twitter as well. And I really like how she trolls her family in the group chats (laughs) like that's probably one of my favorite things of like when she's like talking about living wages in the group chat in her family group chat she's always trying to get kicked out she is definitely like super fun Uh, she is hilarious and like like insightful about a lot of things i mean so this is an episode that ends up talking about faith a lot Mm -hmm. um which is like super dope because like Tori identifies as an atheist and what's so cool about that is you know she does a lot of work like encouraging religious communities to like do and be better um (laughs) which we'll we'll talk about today (laughs) um yeah now she is just such a like a dope bright human and I am so excited we get to like share her and her just incredibleness with you all today but before we do um We are going to get into our Hope Note segment. So as y'all already may know, we are working to share the things that are inspiring to us as well as what challenges us. Um, But right now we'll talk about that inspiration. Um, Nandi, I'm curious, like what is inspiring you this week? This has been a wild week. Like, I mean, everything that's happening, like with the government and the presidency and the election you know, everybody's like talking about this next hundred days being crucial into like who we want, what we want our nation to be. So for me this week, my hopeful thing is the anti-coup by Gene Sharp. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's 72 pages. I'm reading it. I'm telling everyone else to read it because I just feel like it's something that that's easy that we can all do. And at least if we all read it, we have the information and we know how to get information you know that's keeping me encouraged this week now that's that's super super dope i mean gene sharp is a a brilliant man mm-hmm. who has given us just so freely given like his wisdom around like things like anti-coup and yeah. and movement building and strategizing um if y'all aren't familiar with Gene Sharp's work, which you should be, because we have mm-hmm. talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> and Andre very, very much is a student of Gene's. Um, you should definitely get it, your hands on some of his books. They're really, really important. What about you? Yeah. Yeah. Good? Yeah. Um, I am actually really inspired um, by something called Evolving Faith. Um so I was a part of a conference last weekend mm-hmm. um, called Evolving Faith. It's going into its third or fourth year. I'm not 100% clear. But the reason why I'm like really pumped about this community is um, in the conference that it's formed around 
is because it reminds me that sometimes faith actors can get it right. Mm. Um, so, you know, I was a part of it as um, a, a POC, uh, uh, actually specifically a bi POC. So looking mm-hmm. at Black, Indigenous and people of color, um, I was a spiritual leader for that um, space. And it's because mm-hmm. this conference specifically works to lay apart space and time and resources like for Black, Indigenous and people of color attendees. Um, there's also like a disability coordinator and like oh, in their yeah. merch, they actually had those masks that have like the plastic windows on them. Oh, that yeah. way people are able to read lips wow and and so it just reminded me that there are like faith communities and faith actors who are just super committed to equity it's not just like diversity that are their aims they're like how do we help people feel like they really prioritize and like allow for resources to exist here in order to like give them what they need outside of you know privileged folks outside right. of you know decentering privileged folks needs um and centering those of folks who experience marginalization in the world so shout out to evolve in faith i love y'all keep doing what you do <laughs> yeah that's great that sounds i you know i very much and since we're about to go into the interview very much identify with tori it's like tori it comes from you know these uh from church i guess i'll say just to be like Mm -hmm. broad i also grew up in the church i don't identify as an atheist i think i'd say i probably lean more into like agnostic Mm -hmm. uh but i'm excited because i really love that tori is able to uh, speak to faith leaders because i find Mm -hmm. myself in a lot of spaces like that also just because by way of how i grew up and of course like andre was my pastor at one point so Mm -hmm. you know um it's really interesting. And I think that with that, I think that's a good time for us to uh, listen to the interview. I agree. Here's Perry Glass, y'all. Hi, Tori. Hi, Andre. I'm so glad to talk to you again. Oh, thank you. I love talking to you. I love talking to you, too. And now people get to hear us talk again. I know. We have so many good (laughs) conversations. It's amazing. But for the first time on my podcast, they've heard us talk on yours. Yes. True. Very true. Nice. Okay. So we're talking about your, your new, I guess, is it new? I don't know. I don't know if we should still call it new, but your latest project. It's fresh. Yes. There we go. Your fresh (laughs) project, White Homework. Yes. So tell me about White Homework. What is it? So, um, essentially I had all of these folks coming to me on Twitter, um, who were saying like, Hey, I, I really want to get involved, but I don't like, I don't really know what to do. And I mean, granted there are groups, you know, I, I guess I shouldn't name them, um, <laughs> that are, you know, that kind of, that are more like on, on the ground, I guess. And like, Hey, like, this is what we're going to do, like in our community to support, you know, Black Lives Matter or like you know, indigenous people who live in our community, or if, you know, mm-hmm. if there's a nearby reservation or whatever the case may be, like trying to fulfill, like meet those like physical needs, I guess, like tangible things that people can do. And so I, I feel like when people were the, at the point, people come to me and they're like, Hey, I want like advice, direction, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, they kind of already have like the language 
they kind of already have like the the weight of like the moral responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. And so I decided to create white homework as a way for people to like funnel like their need to do something right um, into a more yeah. productive space, like within their own community. Right. I think that a mm-hmm. lot of the time, you know, we learn about, about like national history um, or we learn about like the history of the South or we learn about history of like, you know, forced marches and displacement, but it's like, okay, what, what happened in your community, right? Like who are the people in your community right now? Who are the activists in your community right now? Go and do that research and go talk to them and ask how you can support them. Um, I had, I, uh, I was talking to my friend Sonia Gibbs yesterday and she was like, white people need a job. It was like, oh my gosh, like (laughs) it's so true. Right. It's like white people need a job. Well, they need a task, right. They need something to do. Right. Mm -hmm. We need to, we need to say like, because we can't obviously like, we can't do this on our own. Right. Like you and me, Mm -hmm. um, we need, but like giving white people tasks that they can go and like execute on and feel accomplished in is, I think, and I think it's really important, right? Because people want to feel useful, which makes sense. I mean, and, and, and that's great, but it's like, okay, let's find a way for you to be useful in the way that you're providing support. Because I think that a lot of times like you get like these white savior flare-ups, right? Where people Mm -hmm. are like, okay, I want to do the work. So I'm in charge now. And it's like, you don't know anything Mm -hmm. about this community. (laughs) Like you have not done, you haven't done your homework. You haven't done your research. And so for me with white homework, I'm like, okay, you're going to do the research first and go in with an attitude of humility, right? And service, yeah. not an attitude of, I'm going to come in and fix this because no, the fuck you're not. Like, sorry. I, for, I always forget <laughs> if you guys swear on this show or not. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we do or not. <laughs> okay, good. Perfect. Yeah, so giving, giving, I think, giving white people a task, something, um, a way yeah. to, um, you know, see, like examine their own privilege. Um, yeah specifically like as an individual assess what you have like the ability um the access the resources the connections that you have as an individual and then taking that and saying okay how can i serve right and say instead of saying how where can i be in charge what can i take over right we're trying to get out of this colonizer mindset of taking stuff over from people of color um so yeah. And, and using that as leverage to say, okay, we're going to do, we're going to do these small things, right? These smaller projects. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to focus on that, your own community. And then essentially like the proceeds from white homework are going to go to paying rent for a family of color for a year. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. That's awesome. Now I noticed that you've been um, talking a lot about reparations. And so is that how that's factoring into your work, like trying to make sure that some of this money is supporting families of color? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely it is. I think that there is, um, again, reparations is like, it's such a huge thing, right? And we talk about things like on this national scale, like having a serious conversation about like, okay, what does it look like to like give land back to indigenous people, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's a really sobering, huge, huge yeah. thing. What does it look like to make restitution for centuries of of forced labor right Mm -hmm. um and that feels really overwhelming and so for me 
in in this i've like i've just kind of narrowed it down it's like okay let's pay rent for um an a native family for a year and just like give them some breathing room right because that mm-hmm. that can change like the course of people's lives right like that can change your entire trajectory mm-hmm. so it was like okay like yeah let's let's find uh find a native family find a black family like let's obviously we can't fix all of it Right. So you're just going to start throwing starfish, right. To kind of go back to that old, that old parable story proverb. I don't know exactly what it is, but right. It's like the, the, the problem is enormous. So you're just going to start where you are. So for me starting where I am and, and part of it, part of it comes from like growing up just really poor. Right. And, and not knowing where meals were going to come from. Um, just having, having a little bit of breathing room would have been such a game changer for, for my family growing up. So that also kind of motivated it. Right. Cause it's like the lived experience for me. Yeah, of course. I noticed you've also been talking a lot about indigenous people, indigeneity, and I'm just wondering, what are you processing around that right now? Well, so I started, I only read depressing books, which I I don't know if I've told you this, (laughs) but um, so I, I really, which is like, which is to say I pretty much only read American history. Um, and so I started reading an indigenous people's history of the United States. Um, and that has, uh, you know, I, I know because I follow a lot of native people that it's like, you know, the, the issue of, of broken treaties and stolen land. And, you know, I kind of knew about the issue and just the genocide against native people that was committed by our government, you know, by the standards that we you know, we, we refer to this as genocide, right? So it's like, we're not going to pretend like it's not. So, you know, I kind of knew like the broader strokes, but reading a lot about more individual incidents, I guess I shouldn't call them incidents, right? But like specific events that took place Uh that were acts of violence and terrorism against Native people and having a, a broader, like fuller understanding of that um, I actually, the, the first book I read on this, which is kind of interesting was, um, killers of the flower moon, um, mm-hmm. which talks about, um, the assassinations of, of wealthy Osage, um, people in Oklahoma after, after, wow. um, oil was discovered on their wow. native land. Right. So mm-hmm. there was, um, this actually pretty massive conspiracy to kill these people off so that mm-hmm. their land could be taken obviously by white dudes. Um, mm-hmm. So that was kind of, that was kind of like my jumping off point. And there was so much there that I didn't, I, you know, I knew that that had happened, but there was so much there that I didn't realize, right. I didn't realize that the government was like, Oh, these native people are too rich. And so they essentially had, they gave you like a white handler who wow. you had to go through to get access to your own money. Right. Like Congress actually passed a law saying that wealthy native people needed like a white overseer who they Mm -hmm. had to go through. And so these these men obviously clearly were were siphoning money into their own bank accounts. They were stealing stuff. They were marking stuff up. Right. It's like, I want to buy a car. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, they go and like buy the car for whatever, twenty thousand dollars in today's money and Mm -hmm. then sell it to the native person who they're supposed to be protecting. Right. For forty thousand just all kinds of 
like wild abuses that we never, never hear about. Um, so that was kind of what, what kicked it off for me. And then I, you know, I, then I jumped into, um, an indigenous people's history of the United States. Um, and, and, and part of it too, was because, you know, on my mom's side, like my ancestors were settlers, like they were colonists. Mm-hmm. They, they, mm-hmm. you know, they came to Oregon, you know, you know, it was a state at that point, it was the 1880s took land that had originally, you know, that had been ceded quote unquote from a local tribe, which this is interesting. I found out the name of the tribe have no idea how to pronounce it. I've never even heard them mentioned before. Um, hmm. It looks like it looks to me like Kalapua, Pua, Paya, but I'm not sure. <laughs> um, like, honestly, yeah, and it's I'm like, this sure. is, this is insane, right? Like, yeah. I'm sorry, I shouldn't use ableist language, but this is, it's nuts to think about the fact that it's like my, ancestors were given land because they were white that was taken away from individuals who had rights to it taken away from them because they were not white and that was like that was hey this is like this is a free handout that we're giving to to the white people and so you know as i've been doing more research on that right like trying to find my goal for the year is to try to find um like the land deed or land grant that was given to my great great grandfather which i think i think it's in i think it's like in benton county but i actually have to like go down like benton county oregon but i actually have to like go down to to like the office and like see if they still see if like or find out if they have an archivist or you know so it's going to take me some effort but trying to find out it's like okay whose whose land was this like who was this taken from right because i think we kind of yeah. have this this false narrative of of like oh these people don't exist anymore like native people don't exist anymore um, yeah, that is a that is a big myth. Um, right. Yeah. You mentioned that um, on your mother's side. So mm-hmm. you have white family. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're biracial. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering if that plays into the responsibility you feel to teach white people. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One hundred percent. I mean, I think that be- being biracial, there there's like a lot of kind of privilege that comes with that. And so there's a lot of responsibility, right? If you have privilege, you have responsibility. Like it's pretty, to me, morally, that is a very cut and dry issue. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I feel obligated and, 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 you know, again, like this conversation that I had with my friend Sonia the other day, that was really good. It was like, okay, you're given like, you're given as, as like an acceptable person of color, right? You're like, you're given certain passes, right? You're given like these kind of hall passes in in Mm -hmm. the realm of whiteness. Like you don't have any authority, you don't have any say, but it makes white people feel good to like have you in their space. So they have receipts when someone calls them a racist, right? So- Oh, um, and they can be like, well, I have a black friend. Right, exactly, exactly. And so, you know, to to not allow that, to happen, right? To not be the diversity ornament in those white spaces, but also <laughs> to say like, hey, like I've got the key card. I'm letting other people in here, right? Like, yeah, yeah. but again, these spaces, like these predominantly white spaces, white controlled spaces, I guess I should say, it's like, they're not necessarily safe for people of color either, right? No. Like if you're not, if you're not like the acceptable, if you're not, if you're not the respectable, acceptable Negro, the way that they need you to be yeah. right. Like that's a dangerous space for people to be in. So it's, it's what it's like decolonizing, right. This, these spaces of like, okay, like if you like, sure, like you, you let me in here, but that's like, that's not enough. Right. Like the fact that you feel comfortable enough with me tells me that you aren't doing enough work and we need to bring other people into this space that you need to listen to, that you need to defer to. Um, 
So that's kind of how I view it. Sometimes when I'm in race conversations with biracial people, especially those that are identified, I mean, I don't know any biracial person that doesn't look black, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Black is a dominant chief. So, so oftentimes, so there are oftentimes in these conversations where sometimes people enter and say, well, I don't know, they can kind of undermine some of the, the, the points that black people are making. And before I even go any further, I used to do this as a, as a Jamaican uh, man, because my, my parents are immigrants and they came, I mean, my parents were fresh off the boat Jamaican, you know, not even a couple of generations American at all. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so sometimes I used to feel like, oh, well, I'm different. Like I'm black, but I'm different, you know? And mm. in those and in my ways and in my ways of thinking, oh, I'm black, but I'm different. You know, and I was like maybe a teenager uh, back then. Uh, I would kind of I was coming from a colonized place in the way I was participating in those conversations. Yeah. Know? Yes. And I find that happens often with me in conversations with folks who have a white parent but are identified as black, too. And so I wondered, does that resonate with you? Is that familiar to you? Do you have experiences like that uh, in your story? I mean, I like I was raised white, you know, mm-hmm. um, I was raised in places where people claimed to be colorblind that clearly were not. Um, mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I mean, I was I was raised in in whiteness, so there's a piece of that where it's like survival, right? Like you just have to do as a kid, you just have to do what you have to do to survive. And you don't know any better. Nobody gives you any tools or resources to empower you. I, I'm, I'm struggling to remember. Um, I mean, I definitely, you know, I was, I was conservative for a long time. Like I attended a reformed, mm-hmm. like white bro church and, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I, but I didn't, at the same time, I didn't really identify as, as black necessarily like it wasn't like oh Uh, i'm in denial but it was just it was like everybody around me is telling me this doesn't matter right Right. and that i can't bring it in i can't bring this part of myself into this conversation so you just leave your blackness at the door right that's what i was going to ask you i was going to say well maybe it just wasn't important to you because that's i that's how i felt growing up was like uh, being black was not necessarily important to me all the time. And it was partly because I felt like it couldn't be, you know? <laughs> like, right. So at home with like my black radical father, you know, who I say at home, my parents were divorced when I was eight. So he wasn't really at home, but you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. When I was around my dad, who, by the way, just random fun fact about my dad, found out the other day, like he re- had some random meeting with Fidel Castro, like in his, when he was oh. younger, <laughs> it oh just God. came up. Just came up casually, like at, at Applebee's while we're talking. And he won't tell me about it. He won't tell me oh. what they talked about. He oh won't tell God. me how it came about. Anyway, so so as you could imagine, when I was around my dad growing up, like, it's cool to be black, you know, and I can listen to Bob Marley and sing Get Up, Stand Up and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But when I was around the church folk, and the church folk were mostly white evangelicals. Yeah. You know, it didn't feel like something I could bring to the table. So anyway, yeah. that's what, as you were saying, that I was going to ask. So, you know, did you feel that same kind of pressure too to be like, well, you know, some of us didn't identify as black strongly because uh, white people are not comfortable with us identifying, strongly identifying as black. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I there was definitely, I don't know. I always, I guess I always felt like a sense of 
pride. Like I was never ashamed of being black, Yeah. but I was like, but I knew from a very, very young age that being that, that things were not equal, right. The things were not equitable, that access and opportunity were not equal. And I saw that just being in the car with my parents driving down the street, like that was very clear to me. I, I was, I was, so I was never, I was never ashamed of being black, but I was definitely mm-hmm. like confused by yeah. the mixed messages that I was getting right like externally, the messages that I was getting from, from home and then from church and then from like the greater, like the outside world were all mm-hmm. very kind of disparate. Right. Yeah. Um, like they did, they didn't, they didn't, nothing in that lined up. And so I tended to be more defensive. I've always tended to be more defensive, more empathetic, have hold more space for black people. And that was before I had any of the data, right? Like that was before I knew the way that trauma affects your brain Mm -hmm. and the way that, you know, just, just the, the way that microaggressions affect like the way that you view the world and your reactions to things that you aren't expecting. Mm. Um, like I always, I always had like, and this is not, this is, wasn't the case across, across the board. Like I've talked to my siblings, um, and not everyone felt this way, right? Like some of them really internalized like the anti-blackness a lot more than I did. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I mean, it's like, I, I, I always got excited when there was like someone when when there was a you know a black person like leading worship or or speaking at church like that was always super exciting to me like I was always so thrilled when I because representation still mattered to me right I was never yeah. like the oh pretend like pretend we're all equal and just ignore everything I you know I knew that I had to leave parts of myself like I knew that I had to leave my my blackness and my queerness like at the door in those spaces yeah. right because yeah. because white you know, evangelical spaces can't abide any of that. I I don't know. There was, there, there wasn't the aspect of shame that I know that a lot of other people, especially like trans, trans racial adoptees and kids of color who are raised by like white parents or a white parent um, Mm -hmm. tend to feel like I didn't have any of that. Yeah. Well, I know that the black lives matter movement also had like a really strong impact on your life and the way that the way that you approach, um, well, your your entrance into like doing more anti-racism work and stuff like that. So how did how did the death of Mike Brown, uh, how did that change your life? Again, I was in like a very conservative church at the time was a very kind of avid Facebook user. Um, and mm-hmm. so when Michael Brown was murdered, I saw kind of in real time the responses of the people in my church community. Right. Yeah. And they, they were, they were awful, right? They were racist. It was like the amount of vitriol that I was exposed to like that, that week was, I mean, it took me years to process it. Like just the amount of hatred and, and, and just like rabid anti-blackness uh, was really like was extremely traumatizing and made me go like, Oh, okay. Like I'm not wanted in this space. Right. Like, you don't think that I have anything of value to contribute here. Um, that, yeah, that really kind of changed a lot for me. Um, and a lot of yeah. people filtered themselves out of my life because of it, because I was like, Oh, okay. So if we're, if this is how it's going to go, like I'm going to, I'm going to talk about this, right? Like I'm going to make a stink about this because you are claiming 
that you're on the right side. You're on the right, you know, that you mm-hmm, support mm-hmm. me. But, you know, when it comes right down to it, you're, you're, you're not right. When it comes right down to it, like you will yeah. choose, you will choose race solidarity with whiteness over my life. Yes. And mm-hmm. I want you to own that. Um, or, so even, I, or even over religious solidarity at that point, right? Like mm, they're not mm-hmm, saying, hey, we're mm-hmm. Christians. We're, we're, we're supposed to be the family of God. I'm going to be oh, on yeah. your side. Yeah. And <laughs> it, it, it was like, the, I guess for me, it was like the raging hypocrisy of like, mm-hmm. oh, these are the people that have for my whole life, my entire life have told me we love our neighbors. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that is what Jesus called us to do is love our neighbors. And then it's like the minute that a black teen is murdered over, like maybe stealing some cigarettes that goes out the window. Oh, okay. Like, so everything that you told me was a goddamn lie. Yeah. Like that's what, that's what is, that's what you're communicating to me right now. So that's good to know. Like, thank you for being honest for once in your life. When you say that, it reminds me of the story where the guy comes to Jesus and he's like, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus is like, you know, you know, love your neighbor. Right. And the guy's like, Who's my neighbor? Except for in this in this scenario, the guy goes, "Okay, but what if what if my neighbor's pants are really low?" <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my gosh. What if yep. my neighbor? What if my neighbor's sagging their pants? What if my neighbor has gold teeth in his mouth? What if my neighbor uh, is raps? <laughs> or what, <laughs> oh my if, gosh. what if my neighbor has hydraulics on his car? What if my neighbor like uh, doesn't speak English the way that I do? <laughs> You know, mm-hmm, like going down mm-hmm, the line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, that's, it's so interesting because, because whiteness always looks for an out. Right. And I think it's so funny mm-hmm. that I, I don't know. I find it personally kind of humorous that it, it, like in that, that there is this piece of like Christianity that is used as the out. Right. Ooh. Like, that yeah. is like the lever. That is how I'm getting out of this situation. I am uncomfortable here. So I'm going to hide behind Christianity and not confront like what you are bringing, like the reality, the truth that you're bringing to this conversation. And, and it's, what, in what ways do, are there any specific, like, like when you say there's a lever in Christianity or there's an out there, like a loophole, like, are you thinking of something specific? I mean, I, I guess I'm thinking about just, just the like the narrative, right? Or like the myth of like, we're all equal now, like civil rights mm-hmm. is over, like we did the thing, like everything is cool. Um, and, and also like, God, you know, the whole like, God doesn't, God doesn't see color, like God judges us by our hearts. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. when you, when you have, when you have a library, right, of 66 books, it's like well over a thousand pages long. <laughs> Um, it's like, yeah, you can find, you can find an out, you can find a lever. Like this whole thing is the Mm -hmm. word of God. And I'm going to weaponize this one verse against you to get you to shut up Mm -hmm. because I'm not comfortable with the experience that you have lived. Mm. Right. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I, (laughs) that's kind of how I see it. That's like, that's like the, the, the escape hatch, right. Within, within evangelical Christianity, especially, but I mean, mainline churches have the, the same problems, frankly, they just they just talk about, they use different, they use different levers to get they out. Use different, they use different, ones. <laughs> different escape hatches. I think churches have a moral obligation to utilize what they already have to be able mm-hmm. to implement the work of justice and change. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because uh, one, one thing I didn't expect with starting this podcast was that I would end up talking about faith and spirituality so much. Um, 
because I didn't start doing this like as, oh, I want to do a faith and justice podcast. You know, if anything, if someone was like, do you want to do a faith and justice podcast? I'd be like, no, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I hear you. I ran into it in my studies, first off, like reading as much as I can about nonviolent struggle, Mm -hmm. just how many, how many, not just Christian, you know, but uh, how many spiritual people, how many religious people how many religious movements have been involved in justice seeking movements and changing the world throughout history. And I keep running into folks who are at least spiritual, you know, so mm-hmm. um, it's just been surprising to me. So it's funny that we even got here too, with both of us, not necessarily en- engaging the com- the conversation from an aspect of faith, but we also come from those, from those backgrounds and it's such a part of our story. So interesting. What keeps you hopeful about doing this work? You know, what makes you say, it is worth me continuing to fight racism today. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, it, I don't know that it's necessarily like a hope. <laughs> is that, is mm-hmm. it okay for me to say that? Like, I don't know that it's, it's like, sure. it's survival, right? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that like, it, it, okay, so here I'm going to go like all climate justice on you for a second. But um, in order to answer this question, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. Okay. So here's, here's what I've, here's what I've kind of assessed, sussed out in like Mm -hmm. reading about uh, the issue of of climate change is that Mm -hmm. frankly, like people, most people in most white people, I should say in North America and like Western Europe are going to be fine. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. They are not at risk. And so I think that there is, there's a moral mandate, right? It's it's like the whole, it's, it's, I kind of, the parallel to me is like Noah and, and the flood, right? It's like, we know that this is coming. Right. And I don't think that very many white folks would be particularly disturbed if 80% of the people in the global South just died. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't yeah. think that that would, I don't think that, I don't, I don't think they would blink, right? Like, I don't think that that would make them put down their fork at dinner while they're watching yeah. the news. Yeah. And that is, that's, that's extremely distressing to me. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, we know that the healthiest populations are the most diverse, right? Like, that's just a biological fact of, like when you have a population that has that is in a space that has like no nothing, right? You just strip it of everything. Like the any any mm-hmm. animal that you put into that space is going to die. Like you can put in a thousand of the same creature, right? And you just put them in a box and it's like, no, we need our environment, right? In order to mm-hmm. thrive as humans, right? And mm-hmm. in order to thrive as humans, we have to have genetic diversity. Okay. Otherwise, like one disease is going to wipe out everybody. Mm-hmm. Um so to me, like this is, it's not, it's not necessarily like an issue of hope, but it's like, I have kids, right? And I, mm-hmm. you know, and, and a lot of these projections, like a lot of these horrific projections are going to occur in their lifetimes, right? So yeah. I have a, I have a moral obligation to my children to prepare them emotionally, right? And mentally, like intellectually to do this work. And yeah. because, because I'm not okay, because I'm not okay with 80% of people in the global South dying, right? Like that's, yeah. I don't have language for how horrific that is. And the yeah. fact that like 
most Americans could just go about their daily lives if that happened. Like that is not mm-hmm. okay to me. So yeah. yeah, I don't, I don't know that it's like a hope thing. <laughs> I think that it's more of like, I have kids. I want them to be prepared to do this work, to know what their, what their moral obligation is as someone who's like born into a system that like abuses everybody else, but also gives them access. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And education and opportunity like, okay, so I'm going to, you know, and, and they don't have like, uh, my, my kids don't have to do anything that I say, obviously they're their own people, but empowering mm-hmm. them to at least know like, Hey, this is like, this is a very serious moral crisis that we are facing that also yeah. has implications for the survival of, of humanity. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, again, like I can't make them do anything, but it's like, do with that what you will, but I'm going to empower you so that if you want to be a force for positive change in this scenario, right. That we've, that we've kind of been given, right. Cause we didn't have any control over the fact that, that like all of these like oil companies decided to just disregard the data and keep drilling, right? Like we don't have any control or any say over that, but we do, I think, have a moral responsibility to say like, okay, we need to change what we can in order to make the world like habitable for people or Mm -hmm. to preserve the ability of people to like live and thrive in their environment, um, wherever that happens to be. So yeah, I don't know that it's necessarily like, again, a hope issue for me, but mm-hmm. um, I am hopeful despite despite the data. I am still hopeful, but hope isn't necessarily what drives me at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, yeah, I understand that. Well, it's always good talking to you, Tori. I'm glad that you came on the show. Mm, thank you. I'm so glad that we got to chat. Okay, so Nandi, I, Tori, Tori and Andre yeah. went so many places today. They did. You can tell and, they're friends. I love listening to like friends talk. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to figure out like what makes sense. Like what for, what's the first thing that came up for you? Um, I think immediately, I think that Andre and Tori talking about kind of like their different experiences of blackness. Mm-hmm. With Tori being biracial, that definitely jumped out to me in light of like kind of all these things that have been happening of where there are white people pretending to be biracial. There are white biracial people uh, saying kind of laying claim to like a black experience that they don't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Um, and so listening to Andre and Tori kind of talk about their different experiences of blackness mm-hmm. just made me. Think about something that uh, Didi Delgado, a good friend of mine, always says is black people are not a monolith. Uh, and I think that especially like in this work. White people are like looking for I think initially it's like black people are right and white people are wrong. Mm-hmm. And that kind of monolith thinking can like come into play. But I was like, it was good to talk about like, you know, Andre is Jamaican, a first generation, basically mm-hmm. like immigrant mm-hmm. and how he thought he was different from other kind of black people mm-hmm. in a way. And then Tori saying, you know, I definitely lean into like respectability at a time. 
I can definitely remember leaning into respectability when I was a teenager, probably like in high school, being like, I'm not like those blacks. But then mm-hmm. quickly realizing, actually, we, we're not the same. And yet we all are in the eyes of mm-hmm. white supremacy. So I don't know. How did you feel about that? I definitely was like, child, we have all fallen short. OK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I appreciated um, that because it did bring up that point that like you shared, like DD shared. We aren't a monolith right. um, like here. They were, you know, the, you know, the black son of immigrants, a black biracial woman. Here we are even having this conversation. You being, you know, a black person from the South and right. I'm from, you know, the Northeast. Mm-hmm. These are all like culturally different. Right. And, you know, and those different cultures means that we receive different messages about what it means to be black, what blackness can and should look like. Right. And so, you know, I kind of had to sit with like my own understanding of like of blackness and like and what shaped it and kind of similar for Tori some of what shaped my idea of blackness was the church Mm -hmm. a a thing that like I share in like you know my more explicitly religious work is that we can't get outside of the the tentacles of evangelicalism Mm. um even if a church isn't evangelical like I grew up in a black baptist church but I don't remember other than like the rare like you know, children's church Sunday ever like hearing about blackness being expressed in like in that church growing up, Hmm. even though it was all black people and it was a Baptist church. That's interesting because obviously like I'm from the South and like Mm -hmm. I grew up in a lot of different denominations. Like my church is, my mom is like a church musician. So Mm -hmm. we were kind of all over the place. Like the first church I was in acquiring was a Methodist church. We went Mm -hmm. to uh, primitive Baptist, Southern Baptist, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of denominations. But in the South, mm-hmm. Blackness is like really ingrained in Black churches, mm-hmm. whether it's like about, whether it's like singing spirituals, whether mm-hmm. it's like the devotional that everyone mm-hmm. like knows the melody to and mm-hmm. like just everyone just knows it, mm-hmm. you know. And so when I moved to New York, I met mm-hmm people who didn't know lift every voice and sing and had like never heard of it and I was like are you black (laughs) I was like I'm sorry every black person should know the black national anthem Mm -hmm. and it's a big part of church where I'm from Mm -hmm. but I feel like my church taught me everything about blackness so it's interesting Mm -hmm. that like but these are the things we're talking about right like Mm -hmm. all black people ain't the same No, I mean, especially like in a place like New York, you know, and specifically New York City being as culturally diverse as it is, when you run into another Black person, they may not be American Black. You know, I mean, even like in my own background, like, you know, my grandfather is from Jamaica. So like, I probably have family members who wouldn't know Lift Every Voice and Sing. Yeah. Whereas, so it's so funny, even though like my church didn't specifically talk about Blackness, it still was culturally Black. Like For we, sure. it was the spirituals. It's like, there are certain songs that I sing or that are dear to me that when I hear them like done in a different rendition, I get upset. Same. Because consistently throughout Black church faces, this is what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting, like even thinking about like that whole premise of like, you know, what messages did you receive around blackness? Mm-hmm. I'm realizing and talking it through that some of those messages weren't explicitly said. Like it was never explicitly said that we are black and this is what blackness looks like. Mm-hmm. But like blackness had a sound to me growing up. 
So I really liked like what Tori said that I super liked that I wish I heard more biracial people say is Mm -hmm. being biracial comes with a lot of privilege Mm -hmm. and with that privilege becomes responsibility. So Mm -hmm. like in kind of like interacting with like all kinds of black people and that and biracial people being like kind of a part of that. I have often found, especially like online discourse, mm-hmm. people feel that when we're like pointing out that someone is biracial, that we're like mm-hmm. trying to remove their claim, like mm-hmm. to from blackness. Mm-hmm. But what Tori said really like voiced what I actually felt. It's like no one is mm-hmm. saying you're not black. Mm-hmm. We're just saying that your experience of blackness, it only encapsulates one experience of blackness. blackness. And it's one that is kind of seen as more privileged because of its proximity to whiteness. Mm -hmm. And I wish more people would kind of like say that because I do feel like biracial people get really defensive when it's like, yo, my blackness is different than yours. Mm -hmm. And yeah, what do you think that's about? Like, please. like. I think that one, the way that you frame this is honestly different than a way that a lot of other folks mm. frame it. Because I have seen folks try to take away the blackness from biracial folks mm-hmm. and to tell them that they're not black. So it's like you're telling them that part of them isn't real. Mm. Um, and that has been my experience, um, mm-hmm. you know, having, you yeah. know. I've definitely seen it super super close like biracial a black biracial best like one of my best friends is like black biracial and like and i see you know the shit that gets handed to her in the Mm -hmm. world you know the ways in which you know her blackness is sometimes challenged yeah and so seeing it up close i know that not everybody has the posture that you do which Mm -hmm. makes me appreciative for you acknowledging that this is an expression of blackness but it is not one that is universally shared yeah everybody ain't coming at it like that um, but yeah, her noting the privileges that come with it and the responsibilities, you know, that are associated like with being able to have that privilege, I think it's a really important one to hold on to mm-hmm. because there are privileges that people, you know, who others of us have. Right. Like, you know, as we were prepping for this, like we were talking about like educational privilege. For sure. Like as folks who are, you know, college educated. And, you know, right now, like, you know, you're doing some work with an Ivy League institution. So you'll have that credential. I'm also like doing work with an elite institution. Mm -hmm. Like these are things that give us privileges in the world where we can say certain things and navigate the world in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And everybody doesn't get that. Right. Yeah. And so there are responsibilities that we have to leverage that like you know me saying that I am a graduate of these institutions means that like I'll be admitted into certain places and it means that I can bring up certain perspectives that other folks who don't have that same privilege like wouldn't be able to do absolutely and that's exactly kind of what Tori said she said Mm -hmm. you know I have the key card and now I can let other people in because especially like I think like the kind of like the closer you are in proximity to whiteness and that's Mm -hmm. on a lot of scales Mm -hmm. but when it gets down to like physical appearance Mm -hmm. like it is kind of like and I'm glad like Tori frames it as responsibility because Mm -hmm. I do really feel that is Mm -hmm. the responsibility of people like that in those spaces to like 
I'm like, yo, you should immediately bring in like a dark skin fat trans woman right away. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like that's what mm-hmm. I think of. But like, you need to bring in like the the blackest, you know, the people who are you, I don't I hate to use this word because I hate it, but unambiguously black. You mm-hmm. know, that's been going around a lot. Uh, yeah. I hate to use that word, but it's for lack of a better word, people who are unambiguously black mm-hmm. because when we see like cases like Rachel Dolezal or all this stuff, like these are people who are like claiming to be like biracial. Mm-hmm. They were like saying, you know, and Rachel Dolezal to this day is like, I don't identify as African-American. I identify as black. And I'm like, sis. Okay. But the reason why these, this woman, there've been a few people who reveal, I encounter a woman in uh, the UU community who is clearly white who wears braids in her hair and says she is black because she says her father is black. But this woman is a white woman. Like mm-hmm. I, I see her with my eyes. I'm black. No mm-hmm. one will ever question if I'm black. Everyone sees me as a black person. And and there are things that we have to endure because of that. You know, yes. how you said it, we're unambiguously unambi- black. And so, you know, it's not even just experiences. There are certain, certain things certain violences that the world yeah. will hand us mm. and perpetuate against us mm. when people have greater proximity to whiteness. And like, it's, it's interesting, like the things you have to bring up, like I've been in the position of something as simple as getting a cab, right. like you would think, and I actually had to explain this to like some white friends a few years ago. Um, Cause they were going on and on about like, you know, how Uber was trash and this, that, and the third and about like how like ride sharing was terrible and like, and the given, like there are some really sure. unjust practices yeah. that those businesses have, but these are services that go to places where folks experiencing marginalization, specifically right. black folks live. And I had to explain this to some, some friends and they're like, oh, but you could just get a cab. And I was like, let's talk about that there. I and mean, so I but everyone knows black people can't get cabs, but they Alicia. Don't. They, they, they don't. Like this, and I thought everybody did know. Uh, so I'm here sitting explaining to someone who, you know, a friend who's my age, right? Like, so at this point, this is probably, we were still in our 20s. And then someone who's my parents' age, you know, at that point in their 40s or 50s. Mm. I'm explaining, you know, what it meant for, I remember it's like one time my dad and I were like in Midtown Manhattan and we were trying to get a cab Mm -hmm. to like run us across town where Mm -hmm. our car was parked. And we must have stood in like pouring rain. Like the rain was just so bad. We knew we couldn't walk in it. Right. For the better part of like 45 minutes, us on like opposite corners trying to hail cabs. And I remember like I never just forget the feeling in my heart where a cab stopped where I was, locked its doors, and then traveled about 10 or 15 feet forward, unlocked for some white folks. Yeah. And then when we finally were able to like get a black car, this person charged us at a ridiculous rate ridiculous and i went on a tangent in the backseat of that car just speaking about Mm anti-blackness and like i could you could see the driver sink lower and lower and lower yeah he didn't reduce our fear our fare at all but he you could tell he felt like crap for doing what he did but like that's because you know anti-blackness is perpetuated by a lot of folks and people who are fairer skinned don't 
go through that. Like, you know, my, my mom and my stepmom, you know, both of them are fair skin. Mm-hmm. Like that may not be their experience. Right. Because of the way that desirability politics plays yes. into, into the ways that folks will like Talk give folks things or like not perpetuate violences against mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Um, but my dad and I both be in like definitively like brown skin. Mm-hmm. This is a, an instance of what we went through. And so Tori, like, you know, what she mentions is true. You know, there are things in the world that she hasn't experienced that she doesn't have to go through because of the privilege she has. Yeah. When Tori brought up reading an indigenous people's history of America, I started reading that book last year. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I couldn't like I, I just couldn't do it anymore. It's mm-hmm. so violent. Mm-hmm. Like. And I and I know that it's finally like when I was growing up. So my mom is like history obsessed, kind of like me. And so like mm-hmm. my mom dragged us to plantations, to native <laughs> burial grounds, to really? former native because Florida is like Florida is great for this. Right. Mm-hmm. Like Florida is great for this. It's very like nature. You can't really build shit, you know, in mm-hmm. Florida. So like. There's a lot of places uh, that are preserved. So in Jacksonville and that area, so like the northeast part of Florida was the Tamakuan tribe. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what we'll, I don't know if we're supposed to use tribe anymore. I feel like in that mm-hmm. book, it says something about using tribe, but the Tamakuan people were there. And mm-hmm. so there's a bunch of like nature trails, nature reserves. There's leftover like housing. They've like recreated some stuff. And then when we lived in Macon, Georgia, mm-hmm. we used there was uh, indigenous burial grounds there. And I think mm-hmm. that place was called Akmugi, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't know how to spell it. But like I grew up learning about all this shit because my mom mm-hmm. was obsessed. And I I really am super grateful when I look back on it mm-hmm. because I feel like I did always know the indigenous people existed and like mm-hmm. I could pick up on like the language is like some people don't even realize that some of these words that they say are leftover language, especially when you look at like the Northeast, like New York. Mm-hmm. So many of the word cities in New York are literally mm-hmm. <laughs> indigenous language you know Mm -hmm. Syracuse that's indigenous language y'all you know Mm -hmm. I mean and and some of these like you know cities and towns are named for the peoples who were there it's not even just that it was a part of the language it's like this says like whose land this was right yeah and is if we're being real about it (laughs) right yeah I was glad that she brought that up because I think I even just think of like how like I always think that like the U.S. is like the one thing that's like kept it going is like they've won like the storytelling game. They've won mm-hmm. like the narrative game. And so mm-hmm. you think about all the propaganda that you're fed, like mm-hmm. Pocahontas used to be one of my favorite movies. Look. When I was in second grade, I mm-hmm. sang Colors of the Wind. And honestly, that song still holds up. Colors mm-hmm. of the Wind actually makes me cry now. Mm-hmm. But that movie was such a farce like that was myth if there ever was a myth and i encourage you to please read this real story her name is not pocahontas at all so i'm Mm -hmm. so sorry sis i can't Mm -hmm. even remember right now at the top of my head what your actual name is i know that was kind of like a nickname Mm -hmm. but 
like when you think about how insidious like the storytelling is like they telling the story to children that mm-hmm. Pocahontas who in real life would have been under 13 mm-hmm. fell in love with this grown ass white man mm-hmm. who wanted to kill everyone and who wanted to take all their land like the way mm-hmm. that they indoctrinate us early is like so disturbing. So mm-hmm. if you can't, I really encourage y'all to get Indigenous People's History of America. It's mm-hmm. written by a woman, which is the other thing that really like really made me want to get it because so rarely are history books written by women. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard for me. I couldn't read it when I was working because I would get too mad at white people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I... I understand that. I mean, that mythology, like when it comes to things like, you know, Pocahontas or even just like, again, like these Thanksgiving celebrations where people mm-hmm. talk about pilgrims um, and Indians. Um, don't use that word, y'all. <laughs> I like the Adams Family version. Oh, <laughs> Adam's family value where Wednesday birds everything Yeah, down. when she does the revenge plot. That was mm-hmm. very, like, actually, when I think about it, it's very, like, Quentin Tarantino, that scene where she's <laughs> like, y'all, this it was a massacre. How dare you tell that story? Mm-hmm. This is what really happens. And she frames, like, the, the get back, which I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the only story I acknowledge that's mm-hmm. a myth about Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, y'all, I mean, in the, you know, we've talked about myth making before and how that impacts us in different ways, you know, but I implore you, like, seriously, like, if I could say I beseech you to to find out more about what an indigenous folks are still going through. Like you mm-hmm. have folks who are still going through the impact of residential schools where like indigenous culture was like, you know, specific, forcibly forcibly erased from children where they were kidnapped from families, put in these schools, forced to assimilate so they could forget language, so Mm. they could forget culture. You know, there's so many atrocities, you know, that are still happening. I mean, it it wasn't that long ago that like, you know, we were talking about the water protection, Mm -hmm. you know, and the land protection needs at Standard Rock. And the reality is that like, there are so many, you know, landkeepers and water keepers like people who are still doing this work fighting against pipelines mm-hmm. you know in the u.s and in canada right. like all throughout north america like this is a thing that's happening mm-hmm. and you know indigenous people who are experiencing really really violent gross you know yeah clampdowns and erasures by governments for sure i mean that was that's a thing happening in you know in south and central america mm-hmm. I mean, hell, it's still happening here. Like, let's not act like that's not the case. Oh, God. Like, this episode was just, like, so rich. And there was so, 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 so much there. Um, I think, you know, to... Maybe the last question I'll ask you, Nandi. Mm -hmm. Um, God, there's just so many things. Um, I mean, we're speaking... We've spoken about Black folks. We've spoken about Indigenous folks. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, you know, not wondering, like, I know that there's like the link of colonization here, right? Like whether we're talking about like, you know, the way that, you know, the world perceives and like, you know, and biracial biracial people perceive themselves, you know, immigrants, Mm -hmm. you know, coming out from out of the Mm -hmm. country and having perceptions of blackness that are different than that of American Mm -hmm. blacks. The same is true, like, you know, for indigenous folks, like we're all, we're talking about colonization, like in the impacts of it. 
I'm wondering, like, how have you experienced the impact of colonization on your life? Whoa. I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of huge. It's like so layered. So immediately, like my first thought is like, because I grew up in church, like I think about religion like right away. I grew mm-hmm. up and like my mom is like uh, increasingly conservative Christian is what I would say, because I think it, really? at first I feel like my mom was like real radical. Like that's why I think I'm able to like approach the Bible from uh, and I and I hang around a bunch of theologians. Shout out to y'all. <laughs> but like my mom was a real like student of the Bible mm. when she first really got in church because my mom grew up in church. And then like when she had me out of wedlock, she experienced a lot of church hurt in her church home. And so she was just mm. kind of like working and playing. She didn't have a church home. And I was probably like 10 or so, nine or 10 when we started going like to a church specifically that was our church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my mom was really inquisitive. She would ask questions about the Bible. She would be like, well, what does this mean? Why does it mean that? Uh, what do we believe about? You know, my mom used to ask questions like, what is, is do you, do we believe in once saved, always saved? Is that real? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff. And like now she's not as much like that. You know, like a lot of people know I don't talk to my mom anymore. My mom mm-hmm. is like super homophobic. And like since I came out, that's just been like a struggle with us. And she said everything from like, it's a phase to, Mm. you know, you're saying it's my fault that you're gay, you know? So I think about that aspect of like how like colonization is alienating. I think about how colonization, how it can differ from place to place can like kind of like, warp people's perceptions of what it's like to live like I don't know the difference between like being Haitian and a black American you know I dated this Haitian girl a few years ago and she told me which was real wild but definitely kind of opened my mind up was like she's like you know black Americans y'all are like just oppressed Mm. and I'm like well yeah (laughs) like yes we are like yes like and I thought like I thought it was really wild that like a person from Haiti was like, you know, y'all are oppressed. And I think about how I've often felt about other like black colonized nations and how they mm-hmm. look at or some of the experiences that I've had that have revealed to me like attitudes mm-hmm. towards black Americans, especially from like immigrants or people who are not uh, originally from this country. Mm-hmm. And even though I don't blame them because it's definitely colonization, they're being fed the same exact media about black mm-hmm. Americans as white people are being fed here in mm-hmm. this country. So I don't mm-hmm. necessarily like blame them for their views about how black people are here, mm-hmm. but definitely it hurts. Like when I talked, like I had a coworker that was from St. Lucia mm-hmm. who would say to me, you know, I'm from a third world country. <laughs> And I was like, that is the wildest thing. Like, what's wrong with St. Lucia? Like, please tell me, like, what's wrong with St. Lucia? You know, like, and and saying to me, you know, I think I'll, you know, I'll never agree with you, like, about the U.S. Um, This is the best country in the world to me, you know. Which is, it's it's heartbreaking to hear stuff like that. I mean, there are times and like, and this is like, I think one of the challenges of living in a digital age is to see, yeah. like, how like folks still embrace like colonial mindsets 
you know, in other places, like even the fact that like mm-hmm. U.S. folks are so vocal about our oppression, I've seen that like push back on by, you know, other other black folks globally. Yeah. You know, it's so it's 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 rough because it's not just white folks and it's not even just like non-black POC. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's other black folks saying that like you speaking up for justice or you calling out X, Y and Z like you should maybe like, you know calm that down maybe yeah. don't say as much and that that is a painful thing it's hard especially because at the end of the day like any freedoms that black immigrants enjoy in this country are like off the backs of like black americans who have been here for generations like the reason you're even allowed to be here and also when you come here, they still don't lump you in with us, right? Mm-hmm. Until they, they know otherwise. And mm-hmm. sometimes that won't make a difference, mm-hmm. right? But like, the reason you're allowed to be here in this country mm-hmm. is because of other Black people here who have been working, mm-hmm. fighting, standing up for Black people. Mm-hmm. And j- they're just going to see you as Black. And so I just always say, you know what? It's cool if you don't agree we going to still let y'all enjoy all the freedoms that we gain. It's no mm-hmm. problem. Like, mm-hmm. All right. So I'm going to ask you another question, and this is a little bit harder. Um, but how have you upheld colonized thought or practice in your life? Woo. I mean, it definitely was like when I was younger, but I used to really play into like this kind of like, uh, like code switching ability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was before there was a word for code switching, you know, mm-hmm. language evolves quickly. Um, but I didn't know that that was like a privilege. So for mm-hmm. me, it was definitely respectability politics mm-hmm. in presentation. So <laughs> it, definitely about presentation always. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, why would you act like that in this kind of setting? Why would you speak like that mm-hmm. in this kind of setting? Not realizing that. Everybody didn't grow up how I did. Mm -hmm. Everybody didn't have the same privileges as me. Mm -hmm. And also that I'm not really different from this person that Mm -hmm. much different just because I can talk white when I want to or when I feel like it. You know, Mm -hmm. that and every time I think about it, it makes me real sad because even though I was a teenager and I didn't really know better it's like when you think about people who be like, oh, black people didn't really fuck with me because they said I talked white. Like I was mm-hmm. one of those people mm-hmm. for a few years in high school. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is like I did talk white because my parents encouraged me to speak what they thought was more white. And mm-hmm. I probably wasn't really that cool to those black people. And that's probably why they didn't like me because I was acting white, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely be feeling bad about that. but. Everybody knows now I'm a real down to earth. I just, as long as you like can, oh, this is, I'm not even going to go. I'd be like, as long as you can read, but that don't really mean read. It means like, you know, understand, <laughs> be understanding and like have compassion. I just, I just now I'm like, you know what? I'm way more open. To, I don't think there's one way to be black anymore. And I think colonization had me thinking like that I was the black that, you needed to be yeah that you were the the desired the acceptable black <sighs> i mean and, but that's that's real i mean and, and i'll echo that like you know i answer this too yeah you know respectability had been 
you know, and I have to continue to like fight against this. Yeah. You know, because, you know, there are certain, you know, manners, manners of speech. Mm hmm. Even like, you know, the way in which I, what I thought to be profane, right? Mm. Like even like the notion of like profanity. It's like, you know, folks are like, oh, you can't say this. Like, you know, this is a bad word. Like not asking questions mm-hmm. about why it was bad, why certain things were considered to be profane and other things not. It's like you're out, people are out here like wholesale, like killing folk, right? Mm-hmm. For no reason other than the fact that they're black or queer or trans and those things aren't considered profane, but you're mad because I said ass. Right. Like, and like, you want to have like a whole like conversation about that, oh my God. you know, or even like, you know, using language that wasn't mine and thinking that it was okay. Right. Ooh. You know, I've had to face certain like words out of my language because they weren't mine to hold. Mm. Like, like I don't say spirit animal. Or powwow, because Mm. these are things that belong to indigenous culture. And like, and it's not my, I don't get to to take it just because I think that I have some degree of utility for it. Mm. Like, you know, powwows are like incredible, like robust, you know, time taking Mm -hmm. rituals. Yeah. How dare I talk about like a convening and like and use something so flippantly for something so sacred? The mm-hmm. same is true for spirit animal. How dare I talk about, you know, the adoption of some of something, again, sacred and beautiful and that belongs to somebody else. Ooh. But these are things that I've had to learn even within the last few years mm-hmm. to like take out of my language because they weren't mine to hold. And I think that that's a thing that sometimes colonization, you know, and it impacts us and like, and things that we have to like work to decolonize from is like the understanding that like we can just take what we want. Mm-hmm. Like, nah, mm-hmm. it doesn't work like that. That's a good point about language, especially, especially because language is always evolving and changing. Cause I think like we see right now with like, TikTok, the mm-hmm. kind of like TikTok generation of where people are saying that AAVE is just internet speak. And it's like, no, mm-hmm. sis. Nope. <laughs> no, 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 no. That existed way before the internet, boo. Mm-hmm. Now, like I had to, you know, I was, I had the privilege of um, working with a conference um, yesterday, actually. And that was like one of the points that I made is that, you know, what you think is queer speech is not queer speech. It is black queer yeah. speech. It is black, you know, femme speech and, and mm-hmm. black feminine speech. Like these things are rooted in black culture. Right. Therefore, like you as non-black people of color, like the yes girl, stop that. Mm. That's not yours. Mm. You don't get to take this just because you think it's cool. Well, can't tell white people that. Well, we are telling y'all that. <laughs> On today, on the Hope and Heart Fills. Um, AAVE is a language. It, it has rules, you know, like, mm-hmm. I, that's like also some, I think, I feel like colonization, like, really stole, like, language mm-hmm. from me in a way, like, now that I'm now seeing is like, speaking AAVE as being bilingual, mm-hmm. it's really amazing but it also is devastating that I spent so much of my life being like, this isn't the proper way to speak. Mm-hmm. But even even framing like it is being proper and improper. Like, it's yeah, just that. it's like I, I, I said this, you know, to someone recently and and I'm still sitting with it. We don't even know 
right? Like we Black folks, Indigenous folks, people of color, white folks, we don't know what all colonization stole from us. We don't know everything that it's robbed us of. But like, as we work to like prioritize, you know, and to learn about and prioritize decolonization and wondering like how we can like disengage ourselves like from these practices um, and, 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 and thought processes, like that's when we start to realize like, damn, like, you know, African-American vernacular English, AAVE is another language. Right. And I am bilingual in this. And like, there's history, like you're right. Yeah. Yeah. And we get to honor those things as we commit to learning. Mm. So we can keep talking all day because I love Nandi and I know Nandi loves me. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We tell each other often. We do. But I think it would be a good, this is a good time for us to uh, transition into our hard pill segment. Yeah, like there are things that like frustrate us with the world um, and that challenge us. So I'm interested, Nandi, like what, like what's happening in your world? Like what's your hard pill this week? All right. So my hard pill this week is like all about like what's happening in the government and the election. My hard pill this week is like you have to do something. Uh, I think that now people are just now starting to get into panic mode about what's happening in the presidency. And it really frustrates me because I've literally been saying this, I don't know, for almost two years and Mm -hmm. been working on things for months. Right. So that Mm -hmm. this moment that we're at right now wasn't going to pass me by. And now I think in the month leading up to the election, people are now just now scrambling to try to figure out what Mm -hmm. they can do. And we know that figuring out what you can do can be a huge deterrent into actually doing anything. And so I just like, you have to do something. You can't just sit around and watch the news. Mm -hmm. You cannot just wait for things to happen. You have to get up and act right now where you are in your own community. Mm -hmm. And so... Like I said, I'm reading the anti-coup. I think that's a great place to start right now for what's going on. Any other books by Gene Sharp, this is an uprising. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I would suggest Full Spectrum Resistance. And these just mm-hmm. like talk about nonviolent resistance and how we can stop, you know, basically what is becoming an authoritarian regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just want people to say, like, you have to like get up and do something like and move your body. It's not like, you know, it's not going to come from sitting. So that's my mm-hmm. heart build this week. What about you? Um, I've been struggling with people's selfishness during COVID. Mm. Like, our world has changed so radically, right. so quickly because of, because of this disease, this virus that is life-threatening, life-taking, and life-altering. And it just angers me to see so many people maskless Mm -hmm. as if this can't affect them, as if this doesn't affect them. Because it does. Right. We, at this point, at the recording of this episode, have 
over 210,000 people who are no longer with us. They're no longer, you know, being able to sit with their family. They're no longer able to kiss and, and hug and hold hands and just be present with the people that they love because of something that was entirely preventable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it pisses me off to think about the selfishness of people in government, specifically this, you know, administration and like in them knowing things and like in purposefully not equipping the people to be well. Mm. It pisses me off that even in, you know, some of our legislators, including the U.S. president, getting COVID, that they're still being irresponsible. Not wearing a mask. Not wearing a mask. Telling people it's no big deal. Like, we've lost so many folks. And people who have survived COVID are going to have, you know, lives that they have to approach differently for the rest of their days. Yeah. We don't even know what the full impacts of, of you know, what's happening in their minds and bodies. Like, we don't know, like, what this what life is going to look mm-hmm. like for them. But, you know, you have folks who are still struggling to breathe, folks who are still experiencing challenges, you know, with their organs and nerve systems and, like, you know, new stuff is discovered all the time Mm -hmm. but it's just like the the, the selfishness like i don't the carelessness yeah like wear a goddamn mask seriously like don't gather four thousand people in a church in atlanta no no like put off your celebrations like don't gather like look it sucks it sucks it sucks it sucks that like we can't spend time with people that we care about in the ways that we used to but don't do what you can to like to to curb things in like in your area don't have convenings of folks come together right like don't throw a party don't Mm -hmm. host a dinner don't go on vacation like press pause on your world so we can get past this like, I can't, I can't stress that enough. I mean, you know, there are elders in my family who are no longer with us because mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. I have friends, like, who seriously are just trying to, like, reorient themselves to bot their bodies because they don't know what their bodies are capable of anymore because of the way that this, like, disease has, like, ravaged, like, them. And not to mention the way that it's affecting lives in other ways of, like, oh people losing their jobs. People losing their livelihood. You know, I just saw that. 25% of Black businesses, a quarter of Black businesses in this country have closed. One in four closed. Mm. People are getting evicted. Like, we're about to have, like, a massive eviction crisis. Whoa. People are unemployed in record numbers. It's time for an uprising, y'all. This is what I'm saying. I'm like, y'all just... Read the anti-coup, stand back, stand by with the anti-coup in your pocket, ready, like, <laughs> because these people are, I because it's like when you talk about the government carelessness, like, I place so much of the blame there because it's like, how are uh, regular citizens who are otherwise uninformed and are like, mm-hmm. I take my direction from leaders and the leader mm-hmm. is like, this disease is not real. Oh, it's not a big deal. I know you see me struggling to breathe after I just got out of the hospital, but like, I don't need to wear a mask. Y'all, like the White House right now has 
more cases of COVID than entire nations. Like the population of New Zealand has a a, a COVID, you know, infection rate lower than that of the White House right now. You, mm. if you aren't taking it seriously, you have to take it seriously. Like wear masks, be gloved up, wash your hands, you know, mm-hmm. make sure you encourage your people around you to do the same. Withhold from having, you know, events if at all possible. Like it's not if at all possible, it is possible. It is. There's so many people who have like, you know, not having family reunions, holidays that they're spending, weddings, you know, graduations. You know, kids, kids have looked forward to graduations and, you know, right. and they don't get that time back. I mean, you're getting like, married. Do your part. You're getting married and you have to push it back a whole year at least. You know, like mm-hmm. that's people, It you know, it's an inconvenience to all of us. I mean, even look, even in our wedding prep, like, you know, my fiance and I have talked about what it means to reduce the number of in-person people there mm-hmm. in anticipation that like, People not doing their part means that we shouldn't have, you know, the number of people we would love to have with us in person with Mm -hmm. us. So so what is it going to mean for us to have virtual invitations Mm -hmm. versus, you know, the the in-person, you know. And and requirements for in-person people, you know, like it's, you know, I'm going on a retreat or I'm going on like a a workshop or sorry, residency for a Mm -hmm. a show that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And. It's small, a very small cast, Mm -hmm. but like the requirements or that we met two months ago to talk about it. And like this month, it's like you have to have a negative COVID test and a Mm -hmm. neg and a either you need to have a positive antibody test from the most recent month or you Mm -hmm. need to have a negative COVID test from the most recent month and have been quarantining Mm -hmm. for the entire month before we go on this trip. Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of precautions that yeah. like when you think about like having people in person fly from other places, you know, it like without being able to quarantine. I'm worried about that right now with like mm-hmm. I'm moving soon and I have to travel and like I won't be able to like really spend a lot of time with my dad because I won't really be able to I won't by the time I've quarantined, it'll be time for me to leave, you know, mm-hmm. so. Yep. And it's it's heartbreaking. Like. I I've just resigned that I'm not going to see my family in person for the rest of the year. Like my family lives in New York and also in Dominican Republic, you know, with my dad and my little brother, like Mm -hmm. I'm not going to see my family for a while. And that sucks. Yeah, it does. It sucks. Like I, I have only maybe once or twice, twice in my life. I have not spent actually no. Once in my life have I not spent at least one major holiday with my mm-hmm. family. Yeah. One time in my 34 years. This will make year two. Like, mm-hmm. and, you know, we lost our, my grandmother not that long ago. Right. And so holidays are particularly precious mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, for sure. So, yeah. yeah, like that's my hard pill. COVID selfishness. Do your part because there are things that you can do. Yeah, for sure. Uh, there were just so many things in this episode so many things in this interview um to to reflect on and so here Mm -hmm. comes your questions for the week what comes up for you when you hear the word reparations what has inspired and influenced your view how have you experienced the impact of colonization in your life How have you upheld colonized thought or practice in your life? 
How can you work to learn about and prioritize decolonization? What did you come up learning about Indigenous history and life? What do you now know about Indigenous history and life? What can you do to keep learning? What Indigenous land do you reside on? What messages did you receive about Blackness growing up? Where did that messaging come from? How have you seen religious communities or actors perpetuate anti-Blackness and white supremacy? How have you seen religious communities or actors commit to anti-racism? How can the religious communities around you more fully commit to the work of justice? What moral responsibilities do you have? How is this the same or different from the responsibilities you felt in the past? So yeah, y'all, y'all got a lot to talk about, think about. So much. (laughs) To reflect on, put in your journals. Um, And some of these things, I'm just so grateful that Nandi and I have had the opportunity to go over today. But I am very, very much grateful that you will, you know, get to think about it and reflect on them. They'll be in the show notes. So you don't have to like write everything I said down. Ross, our, our incredible producer and our resident white person, has put those in the show notes for your ease. Um, but yeah, we've come to the close of our time together. I could keep talking to you forever. What a great time. I love when we get to host together. I think this is only our second time, but super lovely. And I'm going to have you on my podcast soon. So I'm excited. But thanks for joining us for another episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. Y'all are great. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts also helps us get into more ears and minds. This podcast is made possible by our incredible patrons. Thank you for being part of our work at Hope and Hard Pills. As usual, you'll get the uncut extended version of this episode on Patreon. We are grateful for you as a listener, and we love being able to provide conversations with these incredible guests for free without ads. If you want to be a part of supporting the work with not only the podcast, but with all Hope and Hard Pills is doing, your best option is to join the Patreon. Look us up at patreon.com slash Andre Henry. To go deeper, get subscribed to our email newsletter. Head over to andrerhenry.com and click join the movement where you'll get practical insight on anti-racism and social change every week. And you'll never miss a new article, song, or podcast episode. Connect with Alicia on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Alicia T. Crosby and her website, aliciatcrosby.com. Connect with Nandi on Twitter and Instagram at Nandi K. That's N-A-N-D-I. K-A-Y-Y-Y. That's three Y's at the end. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. See you next time.